everyone, and welcome to How Is That Legal? The podcast where we break down examples of systemic racial inequity in the law and policy and talk to experts whose stories of injustice will make you ask, how in the world is that legal? I'm your host, Keto Barr. I'm a legal aid attorney, history enthusiast, and chief equity and inclusion officer at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. Today we're talking about the bureaucratic nightmares of tangled titles, which lead to racial disparities in home ownership and the stripping of black wealth. I'm excited to welcome two amazing guests, Rachel Gallegos, Senior Staff Attorney in the Home Ownership and Consumer Rights Unit at Community Legal Services, and Philadelphia Council Member Katherine Gilmore Richardson. Katherine Gilmore Richardson is serving her first term as Council Member at Large for the City of Philadelphia. She is the youngest woman ever elected citywide and the youngest African American woman ever elected to Philadelphia City Council. Her legislative focus is addressing the city's ongoing recovery from COVID 19, upskilling and reskilling the workforce supporting local, small, and minority-owned businesses, and environmental justice. Notably, Councilmember Gilmore Richardson successfully championed legislation to require funeral homes to provide a guide to heirs so they understand their rights and how to keep their family home. A lifelong Philadelphian, Gilmore Richardson is a graduate of the Philadelphia High School for Girls and Westchester University. Rachel Gallegos is a senior staff attorney in the Home Ownership and Consumer Rights Unit at Community Legal Services. Prior to joining CLS, she helped create the nationally renowned Mortgage Foreclosure Diversion Program for the first judicial court in Philadelphia and went on to become the administrator of that program. Ms. Gallegos is also a board member for the Public Interest Law Center of Philadelphia, past chair of the Real Property Section of the Philadelphia Bar Association, and past president of the Hispanic Bar Association. Together we will discuss tangled titles as an aspect of discriminatory housing policy racial disparities in home ownership, and changes needed to preserve black and brown intergenerational wealth. So let's go to the interview. Welcome attorney Rachel Gallegos and Councilwoman Catherine Gilmore Richardson. I'm excited to have you both on the show and to talk to you about racial disparities in home ownership and specifically how tangled titles strip black families of their intergenerational wealth. Um, first, can you introduce yourselves and share some of your background with the audience? And, and we'll start with Rachel. Um, wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for having me on this podcast. This is my first podcast experience. I'm really excited. I'm Rachel Gallegos. I'm an attorney at Community Legal Services here in Philadelphia, and I work in our Homeownership and Consumer Rights Unit. My focus is primarily on mortgage foreclosure defense and tangled titles, which we'll get uh, get into more, I'm sure, today. Awesome. Thank you. And for CLS, you meant Community Legal Services, correct? Yes. Yes. No problem. Um, you councilwoman? I'm council member uh, Catherine Gilmore Richardson, uh, currently serving my very first term as a member of Philadelphia City Council, uh, also chair of City Council's Committee on the Environment and member of the Housing Committee. Uh, and so I started out in government as an intern and a volunteer when I was 15 years old. And I worked for council member Blondell Reynolds Brown uh, for all of those years. And uh, I served in every position you could have as a city council staffer, uh, except communications. And before that, uh, I was a teacher at Overbrook High School. And I also worked in healthcare at University of Pennsylvania Health System. I'm so excited to have both of you on the show today and to talk about this very important um, piece of of information as it relates to Tangle Titles. Uh, So the name of the show, however, is How Is That Legal? 
Can either of you, we'll start with you, Councilmember Gilmore Richardson, um, is there a specific instance related to home ownership in your professional or even in your personal life uh, that shocked you and made you ask yourself, like, how is that legal? And so the first thing I can remember is being a staffer in city council and hearing about this real issue of defraud of people stealing other people's homes um, by creating fraudulent deeds and reporting them uh, with the city and the Department of Records. And I was a staffer then and anecdotally following the, the legislation. And I thought that is insane. People work so hard all of their lives uh, to purchase homes that they could leave uh, to their children and their children and to have it stolen by someone creating a fraudulent document and then reporting it with the city and taking years and years to, I guess, untangle the webs that have been weaved. Um, that was the first thing in my professional life that caught my attention to uh, the fact that people do illegal things around home ownership. And I'll say the, the personal side would be my personal experience with dealing with a tangled title um, on two different properties and working really hard to, to save them. So I, I'd say both personal and professional experience with um, things that are just crazy uh, in the realm of home ownership. So still in deeds and tangled titles. Rachel, what about you? Um, I think I would say what has shocked me most in doing the tangled title work, which is a new practice area for me in the last couple of years, um, is how expensive it is to deal with the death of a loved one. And it's, it's no different than a lot of things we do in this country where we capitalize on people's grief and trauma, but the death of a loved one costs families thousands and thousands of dollars. In a family's absolute worst moment, we turn around and we say, you will now have to spend money that most people don't have to bury your loved one and to try to deal with their estate um, and to try to keep homes within families. Um, and we ask you to navigate all of this in your most traumatic time. Um, and I think it's pretty abhorrent to do that to families. And I, I don't really see the purpose in that. Um, I know that the, and to be very clear, the Register of Wills, Madam Register, has done a tremendous job in her new role in trying to educate everybody about this and make that office as accessible as possible. But I, I, I every day think to myself, how is it possible that we are um, capitalizing on families at this, at this horrible moment in their lives? So what we've been talking about or we're going to talk about today um, is really surrounding home ownership. And I'm really excited to talk about uh, that with the both of you, because in this country, at least um, this is a racial equity podcast. Um, and in this country, as it relates to building wealth and thinking about analyzing the racial wealth gap, home ownership is at the center of that for a variety of reasons. So I'd love um, if you could talk about a council member, um, Gilmore Richardson, why is home ownership a racial justice issue? Well, home ownership is a racial justice issue because far too long, um, too many people that look like me were locked out of home ownership opportunities uh, for reasons that they were not responsible for. Um, you have real structural racism um, that's really created a system where you see 
tremendous uh, racial disparities in housing and homelessness. Um, and some of this has been caused because for most of the 20th century, uh, a lot of Black families were denied any federal resources uh, that were created for other families to help them become homeowners and then build generational wealth. And you'll see that there's disparity amongst um, African Americans versus other races around home ownership rates. Um, there's still a disparity here uh, even in Philadelphia. And that's because uh, some of our uh, individuals who may have served in the armed forces weren't able to take advantage of the GI Bill back then, or maybe they couldn't purchase homes in certain areas, right? And so they couldn't create a wealth uh, at the same rate as other families because they did not have the opportunity. You actually had restrictions in deeds back in the day that would say you can't sell to a Black family. So, you know, we were only uh, in areas where redlined out of areas and only in areas where we could go uh, and, and thus weren't able to create a lot of generational wealth. And then you get into a circumstance, as Rachel talked about, where your loved one passes away. There's really no plan. Um, you know, everybody thinks the house was left to one person, but really it was no will and the estate has to be probated and it's a very expensive process. And if you don't already come from a family uh, that's wealthy or had some type of plan, um, it's very difficult uh, to, to save the home uh, and to be able to afford every part of the process. And so you're planning a funeral and you're also planning and trying to, to save the home. So really, it, a lot of racial disparities have caused the situations that we're currently in. Um, and that's why we try so hard to do the work that we're doing to help families not end up in these situations. And when they do end up there, to help them out of these situations. Thank you. Rachel, do you have anything to add to that? Just briefly, I think uh, the councilwoman really said it absolutely clearly, which is that we have codified this into law in the early 20th century. And so I think that people assume that there was a few bad actors and maybe there was some unspoken bias and, and some... Um, some more insidious behavior like that. But the reality is, is that we had laws in place uh, upheld by the Supreme Court to say uh, black and brown homeowners do not have the same access to homeownership opportunities as white homeowners. Um, the FHA was was uh, subsidizing uh, suburban communities entirely for white families. And as the councilwoman pointed out, had deed restrictions in there that said you may not sell to black families. And so when you do that for enough decades, you create an incredibly large problem that we are all reckoning with today, which is what was once affordable um, early on for white families, those values have skyrocketed, and now you're, again, locking out black and brown communities from affordability due to the wage gap and other disparities, and so it is perpetuated. And even though we've had some progress in terms of law and anti-discrimination and preventing that in the housing arena, that can't possibly rectify the decades and decades and decades of community growth and how we've developed our housing stock as a country to really only help white families. And so now, here we are. And how how do you begin to undo that and reckon with that, especially when you're looking at homeownership rates? Black homeownership rates are at an all-time low. Um, so it is absolutely a racial justice issue when we have an entire community of our country that doesn't have the same access to a basic need, which is housing. That is a basic necessity that we should be providing for people, safe housing. 
We're going to come back to um, that last portion of what you said, that the fact that black homeownership rates are declining. Um, but I also wanted to, I love when we bring up the historical um, uh, context there, because as you said, there are whole suburban um, communities created um, from racial covenants and redlining. Um, shout out to Levittown. And so we're reading um, this a book called Philadelphia Divided um, and our racial equity book club at Community Legal Services that I would highly recommend others to read that to really see um, the 1955, 1956 um, legislation that would help make home ownership easier for all. We're coming out of World War II and we see that not only um, sometimes was the legal context, the legal document, aka racial covenant, indeed, um, overtly racist, but then in the execution of what is seemingly neutral policy that is supposed to benefit everyone else, the execution by individuals um, in positions or institutions of power then comes about being racist, right? The fact that we had an opportunity to have uh, 150,000 affordable public housing um, in Philadelphia in a 19 30s uh, during World War II, and instead we chose only 5,000 because then public housing got this brand that it was for black people, right? And so I love when we bring up the history of it and so that we are able to see it and connect the dots um, to today. But as it relates to the portion of what you're saying that black home ownership is declining. And although the FHA ended its practice of redlining uh, in the mid 1960s, we are seeing a decline in black home ownership and an uptick in white home ownership nationally. In fact, Philadelphia's black home ownership rate has been declining over the past 30 years. Um, first you, Rachel, uh, could you explain why is that? Sure, um, I am not the expert in this, let's be clear about that, but uh, as part of my work, this is this is part of the ongoing conversation within our unit and informs how how we do our work. So it's a it's a variety of things. One, it's the wage gap. It's dollars. You want to buy a house, you need money, and when you have a very clear wage gap between Black Americans and White Americans, it, it's less income. So right off the bat, and then what we see are a lot of first time Black home buyers who are um, who are facing also a lot of debt as they go in to think about that first home home purchase. And so that is slowing home ownership rates down. And what we also learned coming out of the 2008 crisis was that uh, black wealth was destroyed in the 2008 financial crisis. It, it absolutely set back any progress that was made um, in, in, as that bubble burst in 2008. And we saw rates of foreclosure at a much higher level for black homeowners than white homeowners. Um, and so you've devastated an entire, an entire community and that affects um, homeownership rates. I think also what we know is that lending practices continue to be really problematic today we know and you've seen the verdicts coming or the settlements coming out of these uh these big lawsuits with these big banks which is the reality is that a white homeowner goes in to talk about a loan and a black homeowner goes in to talk about a loan and on paper it is the same exact financial picture um and income status and the black homeowner applicant is being denied or being given a lesser product at a much higher rate than white homeowners. This is happening today. I cannot stress that enough. And so that happens uh, um, over and over and over again. And you see um, a decline in black homeownership. And so I think it's a lot of different things overlay that are creating this problem. Um, but it is alarming to know that the the rate of homeownership is at an all-time low. Um, that's 
it's hard to reckon with again because we we talk a lot about how much progress we've made as a country on this and that and oh we're moving in the right direction and then you see these really really stark statistics that tell us that is not actually the case so we need to rethink what we are doing we need to think about what we are not doing and figure out a new path forward so that again we have all americans able who are interested able to try to achieve a homeowner uh, a homeownership status um, at the same rates and not be deterred with bad financial products that are going to lead them into a foreclosure situation at higher rates than than white homeowners and we see that too in black neighborhoods if you look at that that statistic is really high too that in black neighborhoods you will see financial products with adjustable rate mortgages higher interest rates, undisclosed balloon payments, which all leads to higher rates of foreclosure. Um, you can you can do the studies, you can do the math, and you can see it. This is not anecdotal. This is what is happening in our city. Councilmember Richardson, do you have anything to add to that? Rachel said it all. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention from a historical perspective for Philadelphia, uh, because you talked about black homeownership declining over the last 30 years. And in the 1950s in Philly, it was the height of our industrialization. Uh, all the old factories, the old factory era. My grandmother uh, even worked at Bayak uh, Tobacco Factory uh, in the 1950s when they migrated here to Philadelphia from South Carolina. And um, they talked about how you could go and get a good family supporting and sustaining wage job that would enable you uh, to purchase a home uh, in a community um, where they were able to purchase a home. And so like my grandparents purchased a house for $3,000 in 1951 and the houses uh, on that block today are going for four hundred and $500,000. Okay. And so I think it's the decline of the middle class in Philadelphia because uh, we've left the height of the industrialization. We've seen the most growth in our job market, in our lower wage, uh, more service sector type jobs. And when you have a situation where uh, a number of the folks in uh, your city uh, are working in lower wage positions, it's difficult for them to gain access to home ownership because they lack the resources and or the funds. And the other thing I wanted to talk about is the rising home prices. Um, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years since the burst uh, in the market in uh, 2008, um, we have seen steady increases in um, the, the cost of housing in the city, um, and it's really ballooned over the last two years, um, even since COVID. Um, and houses that were going for $105,000 maybe in 2008 will probably double or triple that amount now. And so it's much more difficult uh, to gain entry uh, into home ownership because you're lacking the wages, you're unable to qualify for a mortgage um, because of uh, any past lived experiences. If you know, you've know you grown up uh, anywhere um, in our city, you know we have lots of folks um, who are uh, struggling uh, and or living in poverty. And so that lived experience, um, you're just trying to make it and get by day by day. So it's difficult for you to have a savings so that you can demonstrate to a bank that um, you have the ability to save and that you can qualify for a mortgage with a good interest rate uh, so that you are not paying a whole bunch extra versus the other person. And so it's just all the things Rachel mentioned uh, and more um, that really prevents uh, black homeowners from getting into uh, the market, particularly in places like Philadelphia. And that's why it's important for us to put uh, programs uh, in place to help with homeownership, like the Philly uh, First Time 
home buyers program uh, that was done by my colleague, Councilmember Sherelle Parker. But all those types of things will be important for us to help um, members of our community uh, have access to home ownership. One other thing I wanted to add was that I think that Councilwoman, you just brought up the Philly First Time Homebuyer, which is a fantastic program. I have a client who I'm pushing in that direction right now. But one other thing that was happening too is that programs like that and other good incentivizing homeownership programs were not being marketed to the black community or just outright being not not disclosed at all. So again, discouraging discouraging potential homeowners who just didn't know that there were opportunities out there that could make homeownership a possibility. Thank you. I'd like to talk now about preserving the family home and generational wealth, uh, which is a huge issue in Philadelphia and across the country. It's when homeowners don't have their name on the deed. Uh, in Philadelphia, we call these tangled titles. Uh, Council member, how do you get people into tangled titles and what are some of the problems that come up if your name isn't on the deed of your home? Sure. Well, the first thing I try to do when talking about tangled titles is really educate people on what it is is there like a tangled title what's that um and really um i'll just tell them that a tangled title is when the deed to the property or house that you're living in um has a different name um from the apparent owner or someone in your family has passed away left you the house but the deceased person's name um is still uh on the property and what happens is they have to ensure um that their estate is probated um so that they can get the rightful owner's name uh, on the property so they can keep it in the family forever. Um, but some of the other situations we've seen, um, and I've dealt with a couple constituent cases like this even this year, are the uh, rent to own situations that go wrong. Um, a property may be abandoned, and we deal with this a lot in the city, uh, an abandoned property. Um, and again, the whole deed fraud uh, issue. And a lot of folks don't know or realize that they're living in a house with a tangled title until they need help or assistance from the city. And so uh, they'll go and try to apply for grants or they may go to a bank and try to apply for a loan um, to help with some of the maintenance costs at the house. Um, they may try to get insurance on the property, but they're not able to prove ownership um, and not able to produce a title with their name on it. And so that's how I try to explain it to people. And I say, you want to get your name on the deed before it's too late um, so that you can access these services and other products and other loan products from the bank. So you've been, you've been through this process. You mentioned earlier, um, there were two um, issues that you had um, and you tried un untangling the title uh, to your family home. Can you tell us about that process and what it was like for your family to actually go through that process? Sure. And so what I talk about um, with tangled titles is how I suffered in silence. I suffered in silence because it was my job as a staffer and counsel to help other people. And here we were in trouble and I had to figure out how to help ourselves. And so my mother died. So first, actually my father died in 2012. And then my grandmother died in 2015. And my grandmother had lived with us since we were in high school. And right after my grandmother died, about a month later, my mom fell and broke her hip. And we didn't know at the time that her bones um, were weakened, which made her hips, uh, her hip break because she had cancer and it had already spread throughout her whole body. 
And so my grandmother died um, in 2015. A month later, my mom fell and broke her hip. We discovered she had cancer. Uh, she refused to get a biopsy and said she wanted to be taken care of and die at home. And so for the next eight months, my sister and I took care of my mother um, until she passed away in 2016. And actually, she passed away on the first Thursday, the first council session of 2016. And I remember thinking, what are we going to do? Uh, at the time, my sister and her husband and their baby were living in the house that my mom and grandmother were living in, and the house was in their name. Um, they had also left us another house that they had a long-term, like 15-year tenant in the property, and both of the houses had mortgages on them. And the first thing I had to do, um, because again, I, I didn't come from a family with uh, much wealth. Um, I had to pay a lot out of pocket to just um, have a funeral for my mom. And after that, we had to figure out what to do with these houses. And so I continued to pay the mortgages and ensure that the mortgages were paid, but we didn't know what to do. And so finally, um, I heard a, a program with our Register of Wills, Tracy Gordon. And she talked about how when you probate the estate, it goes off of the value of the house at the time of the individual's passing. After my father died, my mother never settled my father's estate. So it, it was just a big mess. And so I finally contacted an attorney. Um, I had to pay a lot of money out of pocket to the attorney um, for attorney's fees, you know, not only for the probating, but also um, for the um, services that we had to, to pay for. We also um, had to take out a mortgage on both houses. And I was afraid because at the time my mom passed away, I did not have enough money to pay for two mortgages in addition to the house I already lived in. And so I had to also take out two mortgages on top of attorney's fees. And because I already had my own house, I, they had to treat the other houses as investment properties. So I would have had to put down 20% for both of the houses. And you're talking about a quarter million dollars in mortgages. And so it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. I suffered in silence for about four years. We worked to save up money. The houses weren't in good condition. So we had to fix them up in order for me to even be able to take out mortgages on them. But we fought every step of the way, my sister and I, to do the very best that we could. And last year, uh, around this time, actually, June 15th of last year, um, after so many years of hard work and saving and doing the very best that we could, I went to closing and purchased both of the houses. We have probated the estates already with the attorneys and um, you know, paid all the taxes to the state and everyone else. 
And June 15th of 2021 was one of the best days of my life because we were able to reclaim those houses and put them in um, my name so we could keep them in the family forever going forward. And I, I tell that story because I don't want anyone else to be in that circumstance. They should make a plan. Um, and if they're in that circumstance, you know, contact Community Legal Services, contact the Register of Wills Office, you know, look at the Probate Deferment Initiative and any other tools out there uh, to help you. And we're actually doing a programming council um, to help families directly who may not qualify for a legal service, but still need help to pay for their attorney's fees. And that was all based on the, the terrible experience I went through um, over the last couple of years. But we are now on the other side. And it feels so good to know that we were able to save those homes and keep them in our family and keep our family members housed. If I didn't care much about the sound, I would definitely give you a round of applause. I'm super happy um, to hear that you were able to save your family homes. And, and also thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that experience because I know that there are many people um, beyond the 10,000 already uh, who are suffering uh, in silence and who uh, for a variety of reasons may just not know what to do next. They simply don't know what to do. Rachel, can you talk about uh, this experience as it relates to your clients, whether it's different or similar to what uh, Councilmember Richardson um, just explained? Um, it's, it's that. It is that over and over and over again. And I don't say that lightly, but I say that to let people know that you are not the only family experiencing this. I think um, trauma and grief and shame um, are really strong emotions that, that can really um, put Put you at a standstill um, and suddenly a process is far too overwhelming to try to navigate and there's just too much right and so i think the story is told over and over and over again in the same way because again this is born out of grief this is born out of the death of a loved one and while there are plenty of times where you're celebrating the of the long life of a loved one it's still it still comes from trauma and grief. And so to then try to have to make decisions and navigate a complicated process um, that really forces you to go through financial information that, that feels very personal and it just feels like you're just, you're sharing all of this information with people that don't care about your family or your loved one at all, it's a lot. And so our clients often present in that way, which is um, my grandmother died and we didn't do anything about it then, but now we're, we're in crisis now because we need a new roof on the house or we fell behind on the mortgage. We were keeping it up for as long as we could. Um, and now we fell behind on payments and now the bank won't talk to us. The bank is always happy to take your money doesn't matter who you are, but the bank suddenly is not willing to have a conversation with you when you fall behind because you aren't the borrower and you aren't the record owner. Um, and you won't even get past that first line of customer service because you can't show what they need you to show, which is cut off an arm and give me your firstborn before I'll have a conversation with you. It's infuriating, it's impersonal, and it ignores the human being that is sitting before you and what their family has gone through. And so our clients come in with that baggage and now need help untangling the title. And a lot of times, unfortunately, enough years have passed where um, heirs have uh, further, future heirs have pa since passed away also. We have cousins and aunts and uncles who people have lost touch with or can't find anymore. And unfortunately, if you don't have a will, what happens is, is in those situations, you have to track down a lot of these family members to try to get cooperation. 
because they may own a fraction of an interest in this house and we need them to give up that interest or talk with the family about how they can be bought out in a way that is acceptable to everybody involved. And so it gets really complicated the the farther down you go, but it is the same thing. It is it is grief. We lost a loved one and here we are because now we want to save this house which generations of this family have been raised in. We hear that story all the time. This was grandma's house, but my whole family has spent time living here at one point or the other and my grandmother always wanted everybody to be able to come back to this house. Whoever in the family at any point in their life needed that ability to come back, regroup, or whatever it was, raise their family, um, it, it was important that that house be there. Um, and that is a story that all of us, I think, um, can share to some extent. I know my own my own grandmother's house, that's how she feels about it. She wants it in the family so that whoever may need it at any time can have access to it. Um, and so that's why it's important for these families to take these steps, but with the help of an advocate. And what I always say is it's a thousand steps, but I'm going to walk next to you this whole time and take you through it step by step. You don't have to to do this journey alone. I am next to you sharing this burden with you as best I can. I'm not your family, but I want to be there to shoulder it. I know my colleagues feel the exact same way. We are there to walk next to you um, to, to help navigate the process. You know what you need for your family. You know best what your family needs generations to come. How can I help you achieve that um, is the question that we often say. But it is a story that is told so many times in Philadelphia. I speak only to Philadelphia because that's where our practice is. But we know from a recent Pew report that there are at least 10,000 tangled titles in Philadelphia for a variety of reasons. Um, And so... uh, CLS and other public interest agencies are trying to take bites out of that to say, how can we start tackling this issue? How can we then start preventing this issue? How can we educate the public about this going forward? So there's a lot of resources being devoted to tangled titles, thanks to leadership like Councilwoman Gilmore Richardson has provided and some of her colleagues as well. So Philadelphia is swimming in the same direction on this issue, which is really nice at all levels. Elected officials, attorneys, other community stakeholders, local community organizations, and housing counseling agencies. Everybody is on board that this is something that we need to work on as a city. So it's been exciting in that regard that there's so much energy around it. That's great to hear. And you mentioned the Pew uh, report and in doing research for this conversation I actually went back and I read that report and when I saw that there was with the highest section uh, area with with tangle titles was 87 percent black I was like wait that can't be like a coincidence like what's what's going on here and so we all know that tangle titles are a nightmare for anyone uh, but they are disproportionately generally common in predominantly black neighborhoods with relatively low housing values and low incomes and high poverty rates and not coincidentally many of these communities were redlined in the past Uh, rachel can you talk about some of the systemic consequences of tangled titles for black and brown uh, home ownership you spoke to the emotional and traumatic consequences right the house the only house you've ever known right Uh, Mm -hmm. may be taken away from you what are the systemic consequences 
The systemic consequences are you that are that you have communities and neighborhoods that fall into disrepair because of uh, the inability to obtain loans or financing or grants to do basic home repairs to keep the housing um, stock safe and habitable. So that's the that is a big reason we see clients coming in is they need to make um, structural repairs to the home, and Philadelphia has put a lot of money into this um, by through PHDC and grant programs and low interest loan programs, but you have to be the record owner. Um, And so it creates this sort of hurdle that we have to navigate to figure out how to do that. And so that is a really devastating consequence for for people who are trying to do right by taking care of the house. Um, We know that there are tax programs that are available to what we call equitable owners, but there are provisions in some of those programs that say after so many years, you have to show what you've done to try to untangle your title. And we've yet to see the full ramification of that. Um, But there's that problem. And then you're just gonna outright lose homes to foreclosure because again, you fall behind, even if it's, foreclosure is a a really just insidious beast because you fall behind for a couple of months due to job loss um, and then you find another job but by then the mortgage company has stopped taking your payments you can't get caught up and now you're in this hamster wheel um, of torture because what turned into a very small problem is now huge and by the way you're not the record owner and now we're down this rabbit hole again of how we can get the bank to deal with you um, and we're tracking down lost heirs so you can you end up losing homes to tax foreclosure and mortgage foreclosure um, due to tangled titles so it completely devastates entire neighborhoods all at once um, if, if this problem isn't addressed and and isn't taken care of. And the Pew Report really highlighted those stark statistics, which is black and brown communities are affected by tangled titles at a much higher rate in Philadelphia than than um, white neighborhoods. And so it's really devastating. And I'm glad Pew was able to pull that report together because it puts data behind this problem that that everybody can understand and then try to systematically address. Council member, would you like to address that question? Sure. Again, I think Rachel hit it out of the park. Um, And really, from a city perspective, what we see is that, again, individuals are not able to access the grant programs that we offer um, to help sustain homeownership. The other piece of this from a city service delivery perspective is that the neighborhoods that are uh, most impacted and affected by Tangled Titles are typically the same neighborhoods that need the most service, um, particularly with our uh, community life improvement program and just cleaning and greening those communities, if you literally overlay the maps with the areas that have um, the most tangled titles and overlay those same areas um, with areas where we have like the most service calls um, for cleaning and greening through the CLIP program, areas where we have the most short dumping, areas where we have the most crime, it's literally the same areas. It's the same areas. So we see it play out in so many different ways, even from a service delivery perspective uh, in city government. So going back to that uh, Pew report, and you mentioned earlier, Rachel, that 10,407 tangled titles uh, in Philadelphia at the time that that number was listed uh, in the report. And but really what jumped out to me beyond the 10,000 plus tangled titles were the fact that these properties um, are still collectively over $1.1 billion. I'll say that again, that's $1.1 
billion dollars uh, that homeowners cannot leverage to make the necessary repairs or start a business or send their children uh, to college. With some additional resources in place to address Philadelphia's untangled title crisis, do we have any information on what homeowners can do after they're able to successfully untangle their titles? Well, I would say the first thing folks should do, and, and I've gone through this process too, um, when you finally have title to the home, which is one of the best days, um, is make a will. Make a will um, and ensure that it's um, signed uh, and witnessed. Uh, make sure you sign it and then witness by two people, okay? And that it's notarized so that you have something in place with instructions about what you want to happen with those homes when you pass away. Uh, one thing's for sure and two things for certain. Everybody is born and everybody has a day to die. And so you have to make a plan um, for that day so that the next generation does not have to suffer uh, in the same ways that folks with uh, tangled titles have suffered. And so the first thing is make a will, um, make sure um, the your heirs, your children, and other family members know uh, your wishes, okay, in advance, so they know what to do uh, to take care of business. But outside of that, you're now able to access some of those programs that can help you maintain ownership, um, help you with uh, significant upkeep with the home. You can access uh, loans or grant programs uh, to help you with beautifying the, the home um, and keeping it uh, for the next generation. And so really, you're able to do all all the things that you weren't able to do uh, when you could not prove you were the homeowner. Um, you could also apply again for the city revenue programs to help with your taxes because again, the communities where we see a lot of tangled titles and deeds, uh, we know they're predominantly black. If you overlay them on the map, there are also a lot of communities in Philadelphia that are rapidly changing. And so now you've untangled this title, you've saved the home, and now your taxes are going up because the neighborhood has been developed. And so you need the opportunity uh, to access those grant programs, to make sure you're keeping your house up uh, so that you're not being fined for an unkept property, and just do all the things you weren't able to do before. So make a will. If you're listening to this, make a will and sign it. Uh, have two witnesses, get it notarized, and tell your loved ones where your will is. Thank you for that. It's really, really important. Um, Rachel, what additional laws and policies are necessary to support homeowners with tangled titles? We need to see a change in the costs of probate. We need to see outright waivers of that fee for um, low-income homeowners and low-income families who are navigating that. That needs to be a statewide change. There's more discussion to be had on whether there should be an adverse possession opportunity um, for tangled titles uh, among families. I know that there are um, there are viewpoints on both sides of that issue and whether or not that's appropriate. Um, Property rights are really important in this country. The Commonwealth, our Commonwealth is no different. So I think it's a complicated discussion to talk about easier ways to extinguish property rights from people, right? There, that can cut both ways. Um, I think that we need to be wary of what's happening in other parts of the country, New York, and specifically in the South, where what we are seeing is... Um, 
partition actions from nefarious wholesalers and investors. They find one heir, they talk to that heir, they buy that particular heir out, and then they force the sale of the property through a partition action. It's not something that we see a lot here in Philadelphia, but we know it's coming because we're seeing it happen other places. So I don't want to stop you in the middle of your conversation, but I would like clarity or clarification on partition actions. What is that? Oh, sorry. Yes. A partition action is uh, forcing the sale of a property. It does happen. It does happen here in Philadelphia, not quite that way, but there are actions in court where the family can't decide what to do with the property. So one heir in particular says, I want to sell this. I have a one fourth interest in this. My siblings won't cooperate and they can file what's called a partition in the court of common pleas to force that sale. And the proceeds are are shared. um, But you can imagine that's not always the best option, especially if there is a sibling living in the house and taking care of the house. So partition actions are fraught. Um, and, and so th- that can be another complicated discussion. Um, so uh, mostly what I would see it in, in, in an immediate relief is the cost, the cost of probate, um, talking about um, inheritance taxes that families have to deal with also when you're probating an estate. And the other piece, and my colleagues would um, be very upset if I didn't mention estate recovery. Um, Estate recovery is a huge barrier in this probate process because if your loved one was receiving nursing care or waiver waiver services in home care um, before they died, it's possible that there is a DHS claim against the estate Um, that can be really burdensome. And there's ways to get that waived, um, but you have to know that that's possible. Um, Luckily, we have really wonderful legal advocates in our H&I unit here at Community Legal Services who can help you navigate that and who I call upon to help my clients navigate that. But estate recovery can be really devastating. Again, um, in uh, in the aftermath of a huge loss, it's just another... Um, sort of another punch to the stomach to say, uh, here's tens of thousands of dollars that your loved one received in care that we intend to collect from the estate. Um, And that is a very serious thing. You can't transfer record ownership without dealing with that. Otherwise, the person who becomes the new owner is personally liable for that money if it's not taken care of. Um, And I've seen some lawsuits about that from DHS to try to pursue those claims depending on how the, um, the probate of the estate is happening. So relief in those areas would be a huge deal. And inheritance taxes could be as simple as are there payment plans that people can get into? Can we better advertise that information um, so that people understand that there are options for dealing with that inheritance tax that families get hit with also? Um, So lots of low-hanging fruit, as I like to say, or put a different way, lots of opportunity, lots of opportunity to make this process more streamlined, easier for families to navigate. And and hopefully, because there are limited legal advocates that can do this work, we need to make it more accessible. We need to make it more streamlined so people are able to do this on their own if they have to. The reality is, is we don't have enough attorneys to go around to do this work for every, for every family in Philadelphia. So we have to find other ways to educate people um, and to help people along. Thank you all for for this conversation and for for sharing such vital information. No, thank you for the opportunity uh, and for this important work that you are doing to spread the word. Uh, And thank you to Community Legal Services. And I must thank our our registered Wills Tracy Gordon for the work she has done on this issue as well. So thank you very, very much. Thank you so much, Key. This was so exciting. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'll always take an opportunity to talk about the work that my colleagues are doing and that the city as a whole is doing. And um, it's so wonderful that we have council members like um, you, um, Councilwoman 
Women to uh, champion this work and to continue um, to talk about it because that's what's important is is to getting getting the information out there. So we're fortunate in a lot of ways in Philadelphia that we have people who care. What has unfortunately been um, resoundingly impressed upon me is the struggle both in life and after death as it relates to black and brown people trying to build wealth through this home ownership tool right and so what we've talked about is if you can get beyond the appraisals if you can get beyond the loans that are different that has a black tax per se um, if you can get beyond that and cross the threshold into home ownership then you have to deal with maybe in your untimely demise or in um, the devastation if anyone can get sick or you don't know if you're going to obtain dementia or so on and so forth that all of your hard work that you put into is then stripped on the back end right you were able to accomplish this great goal and pull yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever uh the the framing or phrasing is and then at the end you're still unable to pass that on um to that next generation and i think i think that conversation needs to be had because there's also this narrative out there that um, black and brown people are not um, striving, are not um, trying to build wealth, are not trying to um, leave their loved ones something after their untimely demise or after their demise, right? And so it's really important to have this conversation about what are the specifics, what are the circumstances that may happen, that may have families in limbo who all try to do the right thing. to Rachel Gallegos and Councilmember Gilmore Richardson for joining us. To learn more about Rachel's work, you can follow her on Twitter at RKG80. To contact Community Legal Services Home Ownership and Consumer Rights Unit, you can call 215-981-3700. Councilmember Katherine Gilmore Richardson can be found on Twitter at CouncilwomanKGR. That's C O U. N C I L W O M A N K G R. Next week, we'll discuss how Medicaid estate recovery, known as debt after death, forces people to choose between health care and preserving their family home. So be sure to subscribe to How Is That Legal wherever you get your podcasts. How Is That Legal is produced by Row Home Productions. Jake Nussbaum is our producer and editor. Executive producers are Alex Lewis and John Myers. Special thanks to Zakia Hall, Caitlin Nagel, and Molly Pollock. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Keith Tobar. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>